Well, good evening, and again, it's good to see everybody here. And uh, as we look at uh, real life, more big questions. Uh, Jared this morning addressed the question, God, who is he and why does it matter? And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at what is the gospel. Uh, but before we do, I want to, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege you've given us to be able to gather together to worship you. And Lord, as we open up your word tonight to uh, look at this question, what is the gospel? I pray that, uh, Lord, you'd give me uh, clarity as I speak. And Lord, just uh, everyone here, anyone that's listening, uh, their hearts and minds to be open uh, to receive the truth of your word. And Lord, may it be an encouragement to all of those who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And tonight, though, if there is anyone that does not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, our prayer is that tonight would be that night uh, that they would be saved, that you'd grant them faith and repentance leading to salvation. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And so like I said, this evening we'll be looking at the question, uh, what is the, the gospel? And uh, the word gospel, it means to bring good news. Uh, it comes from the Greek word euagalion. Uh, euagalios means bringing good news. And eu means uh, good and well. And aglio means to proclaim or tell. So to proclaim uh, the good news. And I think we would all say that uh, we could sure use some good news, couldn't we? We live in a day where it seems like everywhere you turn, it's, it's bad news. Uh, there are violent protests, there are shootings and murders, increase in all kinds of crime, there's sickness, uh, families falling apart, lockdowns. I mean, just goes on and on. It's endless almost, the, the bad news that we hear. But tonight, we're going to be looking at the good news. And so what is the gospel, this good news? And in summary, it's the good news of how God, through his son, Jesus Christ, accomplished salvation, victory over sin and death for a fallen people. It's a salvation that delivers from the penalty, the condemnation of sin being the past. It's a salvation that delivers from the power of sin, the present, and it's also a salvation that delivers from the presence of sin, the future. And so when we're talking about the good news, the gospel, we're talking about dealing with sin from a past, present, and even future viewpoint. The gospel, the good news, is not that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is not that Jesus wants you to have your best life now, to be successful in your career to have a good family, to your finances uh, be in order, that kind of stuff. No, there's only one true gospel message. And uh, this is from Paul Washer's The Gospel Call and True Conversion, and just a summary of the gospel. In accordance with the Father's good pleasure, the eternal Son, who is equal with the Father and is the exact representation of his nature, willingly left the glory of heaven was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, and was born the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. As a man, he walked on this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God. 
In the fullness of time, men rejected and crucified him. And on the cross, he bore man's sin, suffered God's wrath, and died in man's place. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. This resurrection is the divine declaration that the Father has accepted his son's death as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid the penalty for man's disobedience, satisfied the demands of justice, and appeased the wrath of God. Forty days after the resurrection, the Son of God ascended into the heavens, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and was given glory, honor, and dominion over all. There in the presence of God, he represents his people and makes requests to God on their behalf. All who acknowledge their sinful, helpless state and throw themselves upon Christ, God will fully pardon, declare righteous, and reconcile unto himself. This is the gospel of God and of Jesus Christ, his Son. Close quote. And that's it. The gospel of God and of Jesus Christ, his Son. And this gospel is the only message by which men may be saved. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Peter, addressing the Sanhedrin, said in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And even though it's the only message by which men may be saved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross or the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And because it is foolishness to those who are perishing, there are many today, and maybe you know, even with good intentions, who want to water down the gospel or leave parts of it out so that it will be more acceptable uh, to the world. And Paul speaks directly to that issue. In Galatians 1, verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There is only one gospel. And it's not ours to add to subtract from, or change in any other way. God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Paul said in Thessalonians, in his letter to them, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. And uh, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then just a few verses later, in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not be ashamed, but accurately handling the word of truth. 
Again, we're talking about the gospel, the word of God. He says, handle it, you know, guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Show yourself a workman that's been approved. You know, you don't have the liberty to change, add to, or take away. and not know. You need to know it, and you need to preach and proclaim it. And uh, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter, he wrote, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It was once for all handed to the saints. And so Scripture is clear that we're not to add to, subtract from, or change in any way the gospel message. It's been entrusted to us, and we're to guard and handle it accurately. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And I want us to look at the gospel in more detail and it all begins with, with God. And uh, God is holy. God is righteous. Uh, it's throughout the scriptures where God tells us that about himself. In Leviticus 11.44, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus 19.2, he tells, says, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Psalm 8, 99, 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. And um, we can't even begin to fathom, you know, God's, holiness. He is righteous. He is perfect in every way. And, uh, you know, the Israelites, they couldn't even stand, you know, go before the mountain. Unless they touch it, they would die. John on the island of Patmos, when he saw the Lord, he just fell at his feet like a dead man. Same thing with Isaiah when he saw, the, you know, the presence of the Lord. And uh, it's just the holiness and the righteousness of God. And then in two, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And regardless of what anyone may say, God created the whole universe and everything in it, and anyone who believes differently, a big bang or whatever, has to suppress the truth and what is clearly evident, and it's foolishness. Uh, Romans 1 uh, addresses that in verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." Anyone who rejects, you know, God as the creator, 
and the sustainer of the universe. I mean, again, it goes against all reason, and uh, it's foolishness. They profess to be wise, but in reality, fools. And in that, in God created the heavens and the earth, God created mankind. He created Adam, and he placed him in the garden, and he gave him one command. He said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And what happened? We all know. Adam and Eve broke that command. You know, they sinned against God. One command that he had given them. And they believed the lie of the serpent. And they ate the fruit from the tree that God had forbidden them. And as a result, sin entered the world. And all of mankind being descendants of Adam are sinners. As it says in Romans 5.12, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. And uh, we know that. I mean, you can take your, anybody who's had children knows that you don't have to teach them how to do wrong. Uh, they come as sinners. And when, what we try to do as parents is to teach and train them in the ways of the Lord and praying that the Lord will save them at a very early age. But they are coming to this world in sin. Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. His standard is perfect holiness, of which Adam and Eve fell short, and everyone else who has ever lived has fallen short as well. And what's the consequence of this falling short, not measuring up to God's standard. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And it's not just a physical death. It includes that, but it's a spiritual death as well. And before they sinned, Adam and Eve lived in the garden and they enjoyed a perfect fellowship with God. But when they sinned, that per perfect fellowship was broken. They knew they had done something wrong, and they were fearful of God. And when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, what did they try to do? They tried to hide from his presence. And God had told Adam, as we read earlier, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And that's exactly what happened. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they died physically, even though that wasn't immediate, and they died spiritually. And that death has been passed on to us because we are all sinners. And going back to Romans 5.12, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so death spread to all men. And that death we're talking about is eternal separation from God. It's a deserving of that. It's a deserving of eternal punishment and, and torment for sinning against 
a holy, perfect, righteous God. And many people want to believe that God will weigh their good deeds against their bad and that if they've done more good deeds than bad, you know, on that scale, that they'll be okay. But that's not what God has told us in his word. Paul says in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And in Philippians 3.80 says, I count all things to be lost. All the works of the flesh that he might could possibly do, his circumcision, his being a Pharisee, his religious zeal, whatever. Uh, he says, I count that as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. There's no amount of what you and I might consider to be a good work that will take away one sin. You may be the best employee, work hard. You may be a good mom, a good dad, a good husband, a good wife. You may be kind. You may be generous. Everyone may consider you to be an upstanding citizen. But none of those things will take away one sin. God is holy and righteous and... Uh, he cannot just overlook sin and pardon the sinner. That sin has to be punished. And there's nothing you and I can do about it. There's no work we can do. Numbers 14, 18, again, where the sin has to be punished, God can't overlook it. It says, the Lord is slow to anger. He's abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And this is the problem. We're all guilty. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. An example of why it can't be is because what would you think of a judge if he let a murderer or rapist off the hook with no prison time? You'd think I was a pathetic judge, wouldn't you? And you definitely wouldn't consider him a just and righteous judge. And you'd be right to think that because he wouldn't be. But how much more with God? He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And again, so he cannot overlook sin and just pardon the sinner. The sin has got to be punished. And um, so many people just have a wrong view of God. You know, they seem like some grandfather figure who just winks at sin but that's not the God of the Bible. Um, because, again, God is holy, he's righteous, and the demands of his justice must be satisfied. And that's man's condition. And that is the condition of every person who has ever lived. We all have sinned against a holy, righteous God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alienated from him. And we deserve to spend an eternity in hell, an eternal torment. And there's nothing we can do about it. And as I said, there's no amount of good works or deeds that we can do to take away one sin. And that's depressing, isn't it? And if it stopped there, it would be hopeless. And it is hopeless, except we have that but 
in the scriptures. But, you know, what a word. And thanks be to God for that word. But that that's not the end of the story. There's more. And even though we've all sinned against God and deserve as our punishment to spend an eternity in hell, God the Father, before the foundation of the world, determined that he would send his son to pay the penalty, to bear the wrath for our sins. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.13, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God placed our sins upon Jesus, and he took upon himself our guilt and our punishment. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He shed his blood for our sins, and as a result, God's justice was satisfied. And that's the good news. That is good news for a hopeless people. But it requires a response. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, after John the Baptist had been arrested, says he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the response that's required of anyone who's to be saved. Repent and believe, or faith. Repentance and faith or belief, they go together. They're two sides of the same coin, that salvation coin. And we see it throughout the New Testament. Peter in Acts 2, 38 says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to place one's belief or faith in him. So he's, Peter's saying, repent and you know, place your belief and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 20, verse 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at what is meant by repent and what is meant by belief and faith. And first, what does it mean to repent? And uh, this is from Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And so first of all, there's got to be an understanding that sin is wrong. 
It's an intellectual understanding that it's an offense to God. And this is why God gave us the law. So we would all see that we are sinners. Have you ever told a lie, stolen anything, uh, taken the Lord's name in vain, wanted something that wasn't yours, or lusted in your heart? Then you've broken the Ten Commandments. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. And so we have to see that first. And then secondly, not only do we have an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong and an offense to God, there must be a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. It's emotional. You know, it's like the sorrow of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13. It says the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. David says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. But then it's not just enough to have an intellectual understanding. It's not enough just to, you know, have that sorrow. There's a re third part, and it's a, the renouncing of sin and a decision of the will to forsake it and to lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. It's, again, turning from sin. It's a, the owning of sin. It's taking full responsibility and not making excuses for it. Like David said in Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so it's very important to know that just because someone acknowledges they've sinned, may even be deeply grieved by it, that that doesn't mean that there's genuine repentance. There must also be that third step, and that's a sincere decision to forsake it, to lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. See, there's many people who want to hold on to their sin and at the same time come to Christ. That is not salvation. They want to hold on to their sin. They want to come to Christ. They want their ticket to heaven. But that is not salvation. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Paul says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so many people only have a worldly grief over sin. And just a couple of examples uh, from Scripture. Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. It says in Hebrews 12, 17, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And uh, I guess the supreme example that I can think of in Scripture is Judas of uh, worldly sorrow. It says in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned against Jesus, he felt remorse 
And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elder, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And we know Judas, you know, that was a worldly grief. That was not a godly grief leading to repentance. And, uh, and so true, genuine repentance. It is one side of the salvation coin. And it includes having an intellectual understanding of sin. There is the uh, sorrow over it. But then there's the renouncing of it and a decision to turn and forsake it and to lead a life of obedience to Christ. And uh, like I said, genuine repentance is one side of salvation's coin. And uh, faith and belief is the other. Uh, they go together. You're not going to have one without the other. And so let's look at what is meant by saving faith. Again, from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he says, saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. So it's trusting in Jesus as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. And there are three components, again, to saving faith. And one is knowledge. You've got to have some knowledge as to who Christ is and what he's done. I mentioned that kind of at the beginning of the message. In Romans 10, 14, it says, How then will they call on in him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone has got to tell them. There has to be some knowledge. And then secondly, uh, there has to be an approval, an agreeing, you know, with the facts. But uh, even that's not enough. You know, you can believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he's equal with the Father, the exact representation of his nature, that he humbled himself and set aside his glory to come to earth, was conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, lived a life in perfect obedience to God's laws, went to the cross willingly, taking our sins upon him, bearing God's wrath, dying in our place, rose the third day, now sitting at God's right hand, and he's going to come back. You can believe all of that and still not have saving faith because knowing the facts and agreeing they are true are necessary for saving faith, but they're not enough by themselves. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a third step that's necessary. And that is you must place trust in the one revealed in the content that is believed to be true. We must place our trust in Christ personally to save us. We place ourselves in his hands and commit ourselves to follow him no matter what the cost is. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 and 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a, shall a man give in return for his soul? That's saving faith right there. And again, faith and repentance go together. You don't have one without the other. And that brings us to the all-important question. And it's an individual question, and no one else can answer it for you. And that question is, do you personally know the Lord? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? In other words, are you a Christian? Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And notice, small gate, narrow way, few find it. Wide gate, a broad way, many are on it. And a few verses later, Matthew uh, 7, verses 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many, many who are deceived in thinking they're Christians when in fact they're not. And when they stand before the Lord one day, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. There are no sadder words that could be said. And um, so I think we need to ask questions to ask ourselves and answer honestly to see, do you truly belong to Christ? Are you a new creation? And um, has God taken that rebellious heart of stone and made it a submissive, tender heart of flesh that wants to, you know, seeks to obey him. Only God can do that. And then we ask ourselves, well, where are our heart's affections? You know, do we love, do you love the Lord? Not just some sentimental feeling, but do you want to serve and obey him? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And if you have no desire to obey the Lord and, you know, sinning doesn't bother you, then you have no basis for saying that you love the Lord. Because again, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. And I'll say this again later, but you know, we're not talking about perfection here. You know, none of us are, are perfect. We are all gonna sin and fall short of you know what, what we want to be this side of heaven. But we ought to be able to look back at our lives and thank the Lord that I'm not who I was. You know, 
I've been changed. And um, so that's just something to, you know, we need to you know, keep in mind too. Not perfection, but uh, it is the direction. And uh, another question we can ask ourselves is, do we hunger and thirst for truth and for righteousness? Do you love the things God loves and hate the things God hates? Or do you love the things of the world and want to try to fit in? Another question, do you love God's Word? Or is it something you can take and leave? It's really just no big deal. You know, I mean, here is God's Word to us. I mean, like we said, believe. Every word is inspired by God. It's how, how He has revealed Himself to us and how we are to live and relate to Him and to, to one another. And uh, the attitude of toward God's Word of someone who truly belongs to Christ, and like the psalmist in Psalm 119, he says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Your testimonies are also my delight. They are my counselors. And in verse 33 of Psalm 119, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So it's just another question. Do you love God's word, or is it something you just take or leave? Another question is, do you love other Christians, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ? John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Hebrews 10, verse 24, 25, it says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are so many people who claim to be Christians who have no desire to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't attend church regularly, and some, you know, don't even darken the door of the church and yet claim to be Christian. And, of course, does, going to church doesn't save anyone. You know, churches are filled each week with people who aren't saved. But a desire to go to church, to be with other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and to encourage one another, that's a fruit that you belong to Christ. And um, may that hopefully be true of everyone. And then another question, do you have a spiritual concern for others, a desire to see others come to know Christ and worship Him? And those are just a few questions, you know, that we can ask ourselves and answer honestly to see if you truly belong to Christ. Because Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, nothing else compares to our knowing that we belong to Christ, that we are His, and that, you know, we have a home in heaven, um, and we'll be with Him throughout eternity. And... Um, 
So these are some questions, but, and if these things are in your life, then you know, that's good evidence that uh, you're a Christian because it is only the power of God that can change the heart and bring about these kind of things. But if these things aren't, then it's evidence that maybe you're not really a Christian at all. And, of course, we're not, again, talking about perfection. Uh, we, again, all wrestle with sin, and, but we are new creations. And we're not what we used to be. And James talks about a, a faith uh, without works uh, being dead. He says in James 2, uh, verse 14, beginning there, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now again, no one is saved by works, but a person who is saved will have good works. It's the evidence of the salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so, again, we're not saved by works. We are saved by faith. But the works are the evidence that we do have true saving faith. And if you're not sure about your salvation, look at those kind of questions, what better time than right now to get that settled? We'd love to talk to you about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I'd like to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I think, again, is very fitting. And he said, The best way to live above all fear of death is to die every morning before you leave your bedroom. And the apostle said, I die daily. 
And when you've gotten to the habit of daily dying, it will come easy for you to die for the last time. And in Hebrews 9.27 it says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. And so may each of us prepare for that day when we will stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. And I know, you know, may we each hear, you know, those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master and not hear those words. Depart from me. I never knew you. Let's pray.